0: Good afternoon, this is Greg Gentry with The Greg Grant Show. Today, we're going to be talking about the redemption process. Yep, you heard it, the redemption process uh, with debt elimination. And we want to talk about why the redemption process doesn't work or hasn't worked for most people and what they can do to rectify the deficiencies or defects in the administrative process. So, we'll start off uh, typically with, um, I don't know, let's just say a mortgage issue uh, and this is, again relates to citizenship uh, it relates to you know, DMV accounts it, any types of debt student loans, credit cards um, you name it in this credit trust system we live in the administrative process is about the only way to rectify the problem it's been implemented incorrectly though and that's why it's, it's got a bad rap oh don't do that, it doesn't work I've done that. I didn't, couldn't get anything accomplished. I lost my house and I got a judgment against me in, uh, in the courts. But the thing is, what you have to understand is the foundation which you rely on is the position that you take as it relates to the debts that are laid upon you that you've been named as a surety or guarantor for. So we'll start off by just quickly readdressing the administrative process, also known as the conditional acceptance for value. You know, And it's all a uh, uh, state of mind, a uh, state of acceptance. And it starts with your mind. So it's no different than a Verizon uh, cell phone bill for $100 or a $100 settled, uh, federal reserve note. Um, they're, they're both obligations of debt. But for some reason, most people accept the $100 bill as uh, income. And they'll accept the Verizon cell phone $100 bill as a liability when they're both obligations of debt. And it's all an acceptance. Do you accept it for value, or do you accept it for liability? So, the conditional acceptance is uh, based uh, on an acceptance and full performance of the terms outlined in the agreement that the parties entered into. Uh, for example, in your mortgage uh, contracts, you know there's a lot of issues there about uh, people try to address about. Um, non-disclosure and things like that. But really what it comes down to is whether or not the parties involved are actually a party of interest to bring a claim or speak for collect on behalf of a third party or subsequent party. And ninety-nine percent of the time they are not authorized to collect on that debt, nor are they empowered to speak for or collect on behalf of those third parties that's a rule 17 violation dealing with ratification and commencement of an action and when an action is filed in the courts courts are there simply to settle a controversy between two or more parties as it relates to uh, an obligation whether it be a contractual agreement civilly or a criminal case which you are bound to perform you know, under the statutes and codes of the respective states that you reside or that you may be transient to, again, depending on the status that you choose. Uh, but the administrative process is, as it relates to mortgages, and again, this is no different than uh, redrafting your obligation as a surety or guarantor as a citizen The mortgage issue for example is say Bank of America is bringing a claim against you for a default uh, typically what we would do before we even start the administrative process is we would basically look for you know through title search whether or not uh, there was robo signers um, whether or not the obligation uh, the bonded obligation And the bond that secures the repayment of that obligation whether or not it's been separated from the contracts and sold to a a third or subsequent party as an investor who is ultimately sold and or transfer that asset to another party Uh, where the dog goes the tail must follow so if the bonds that secure the repayment of the obligation is no longer the property of the party bringing the claim, then there's a violation of Rule 17 for them failing to ratify, to commence a proper action for the course to settle. So before you even start the administrative process, which is like a conditional acceptance for value for certain points and proofs of claim that you ask them to provide, they look at this document and say, this is not enforceable.
1: We don't have to answer
0: this shit. Well, yes and no. No, if you're not going to... ...follow through with the administrative process... ...correctly, I might add... ...just because you've done the conditional acceptance for value... ...and the opportunity to cure their fault of non-response... ...on that first filing... ...and through your default... ...and certificate of protest... Most people file the conditional acceptance for value with the lender, with a servicing corporation, or both, followed by the three-day opportunity to cure your fault and acceptance of the contract, and followed by the notice of default and certificate of protest issued by the presenter, being a notary public, who presented the first, second, third mailings once that's done, that basically comprises your administrative process and if you don't go through the administrative process then you have failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted and of course will deny you so as it relates to a mortgage there is a regulatory agency who you have to lodge a complaint with first and that would be HUD for example but before you do that why ask HUD to take your word for anything? But typically, they won't. They'll look at the contract and say, you have an obligation to pay under this contract. You fail to do so. Therefore, you're in default, and this case is closed. So before you open a case with HUD, one might consider performing a securitization analysis on the mortgage account itself to find out the global identifier number as it relates to the securities that were sold and pooled with other like investments for securing that repayment of the obligation. Those bonds were written as if you did it with power of attorney and a mortgage And so, basically, you have a bonded obligation equal to the amount of the payoff through maturity of that debt. Whether it be 15 years, 30 years, whatever. Fixed, adjustable, matters not. So, what's happening is is they're trying to collect on the contract, but the bond that secured the repayment of that obligation has been sold to a third, third party or subsequent party. And they are no longer able to claim a security interest in collecting... On the obligation. At best, they are servicers without the authority to collect in behalf of that investor. And truly, the only party that could bring a valid claim under Rule 17 for ratification and commencement of an action against a homeowner would be the investors in the mutual fund that the bonds find themselves pulled with other like investments. So, rather than have HUD just agree with you, why not perform a securitization analysis to locate the transfer and reassignment of that obligation, show who own, who owns it, where it's being traded on the open market, and use that as your administrative process versus this conditional acceptance value. It simply could be instead of all these points and proof of claim, you could simply say, as it relates to mortgage numbers such and such, did the lender or proof of claim that the lender did not sell the bonds that secured the repayment of the debt to a third or subsequent party, which ultimately ended up in a mutual fund that is being publicly traded. One point, one proof of claim. They can't answer it because behind the conditional acceptance for value in that one proof of claim, there is an affidavit of securitization by a securitization analyst who is basically shown through a trust indenture, a prospectus, and a pooling and servicing agreement that the party bringing the claim, the action for foreclosure, It's not a party of interest. So it's a rhetorical question when you're asking the lender whether or not they transferred and sold it to a third or subsequent party, negating their authority to collect or speak for anyone else relating to the debt. So the issue has always been with the redemption process, regardless of what the nature of the redraft was in seeking a novation on that obligation and for those of you who don't know what a novation is, simply google novation because as as contracts, as it relates to a contract, there's three ways that that contract will go away. Either one, you perform on it to its maturity or you default on it or you subrogate it with a new contract, which is what you're going to accomplish whenever you redraft with the CAFE. Because in the caveat, the caveat there in that conditional substance value will stipulate what they agreed to should they not answer. And at this point, through default, there will be collateral estoppel as, as it relates to their claim. But again, it is a foreign judgment that is not enforceable by the courts. Therefore, through your first, second, and third mailings using the conditional acceptance for value and an affidavit with supporting documents, example, the securitization analysis, should be basically taken to the circuit court in which the property is situated And a motion for foreign judgment filed. Once that motion for foreign judgment is filed, they're going to give them an opportunity to answer that. Because what's going to happen is you got your motion for foreign judgment. You're going to put in your administrative process through default with all the supporting affidavits supporting the petition. The conditional acceptance for value... Administrative process will be exhibit A, for example, uh, securitization analysis, exhibit B, all of which will be outlined in the affidavit in support of the motion for foreign judgment. They won't answer, they can't. And when they don't, you will have a foreign judgment in the record. Still think you can enforce that? Think again. It's still foreign pursuant to your state statutes and your local court rules, you can research through Cornell, uh, Cornell's database, law.cornell.edu, check the appropriate state, the local court rules section, as well as the state probate code for the respective state in which you reside or are transient to. You will need to move to domesticate the foreign judgment so that it can be recognized and ruled on and enforced in the courts locally. It's what everybody's been missing. Redemption process doesn't work. Conditional acceptance for value, blah, blah, blah. Fuck that. It sucks. It doesn't work. I got in trouble. You know, okay. You have to. Have a cognizable document in the court for them to rule in your favor. Now again, collateral estoppel. They try to come into court after the fact. It's already a done deal. This is not an issue when you have all the evidence to support your position and you domesticate the document. At this point, you simply only need to move under the action filed against you with a motion to dismiss supported by an affidavit that is outlined in where, where exhibits are outlined in that affidavit in support of the motion to dismiss. And those exhibits are the foreign judgment which has been domesticated in that jurisdiction. Judge, we're not here to determine whether I owe or whether I do not owe. They have already, there is a stopple, there is a judgment, it has been domesticated. There's an affidavit in support of my position as it relates to all the evidence that supports that position. But we're not even going to address those because it's already a done deal. We're not opening up this this case and let them argue again. Anything they say, that is irrelevant. We are here for one thing only, to dismiss this case pursuant to a judgment previously established in the court. For example, a bankruptcy issue. If you went through the administrative process that relates to a mortgage and you're in bankruptcy, just notice of intent to institute remedy via bankruptcy is enough to allow discovery without even filing, just the notice of your intent to do it. This is the proper time to seek discovery through the conditional acceptance for value process, get them into default, foreign judgment filed, domestication thereof of that judgment, and when that's done, you basically go in, the creditor name the creditor, let him come in and file his B10 showing his proof of claim, proof of loss as it relates to the obligation that is claimed to be due and owing by you to him, and then do a motion to dismiss his B10 pursuant to the foreign judgment which has been domesticated, wherein he has agreed that he is not a party of interest, and that district court will, or circuit court will. Dismiss his B10. What what you're not asking the court to just take your word for it or take your side. You're empowering them to make a decision that is beneficial to you pursuant to the scandalous nature of the fractional reserve banking system and how money is created, how loans are drafted, the sureties how the surety and guarantors become liable on those obligations and the fact that these lenders are double triple and quadruple dealing and making three to four times the value if not more than what the total payoff is through maturity when they sell the bonds that secure the repayment of the obligation They hold the funds, because they're not just doing it with one. They've got several, hundreds. The monies they receive from selling the bonds are held in trust and eventually invested in the same mutual funds in which the bonds are being publicly traded. So not only are they making interest income on the investment, they're making money on the payments. That's just one way extra they're making money. If you like just giving it to them, just keep bending over. Let them stick it to you. And stay the debtor slave that you are. But having the understanding of what they're doing, number one, is the key. Number two is finding out what to do about it. And number three is getting off your ass and doing something about it. For those of you who have that that mentality... And have tried to utilize the redemption process and failed. It's because it was not a cognitive document that you could use to support your position that the party bringing the action was not the party of interest. That's the way it's always been, and that's the all that's how it will always be in this credit trust system. And understanding why certain procedures are not working, it's not that they don't work it's just the administrative process through its entirety is defective or deficient to help secure evidence to support whatever action it is you choose to use to create this innovation to get out of this debt so do the people who are promoting redemption are they bad people are they snake oil salesmen not not necessarily maybe some have ill intentions but i believe the majority do not understand do not know how to enforce what they're doing for example off topic if you believe and have discovered that the financial institution is basically holding money and interest income on a bond that belongs to you when the obligation is accelerated and accepted for value and accelerated in time to maturity in tax loss write off. Then you have a claim where you could say, okay, here's we've we paid this off. And we ask for a reconveyance of title, whether it be a car, a mortgage, whatever. And when you fail to provide the reconveyance of title, then you are a delinquent creditor. And I'm going to bill you for the title. And that that bill is going to be for the full value of whatever the loan value was that was bonded. If you fail to pay the, the obligation by, or if you fail to reconvey title, or in the alternative, pay me a check or money order or a bank transfer for the value of the title that you are holding as a delinquent creditor, then I will cancel the debt to you on a Form 1099-C, it with the IRS and do a 3949-A referral form for willfully failing to file income tax on that value and those monies that you were holding, along with a VINCEN 101, which is a Financial Crimes Enforcement Network Form 101, 101-104 for individuals or corporations. And basically it's a tattletale form, it lets them know that they basically are delinquent creditors. And until they pay that, once that debt's canceled, what'll happen is they'll hit them with a tax bill, and you'll get a treasury check for that amount. Just like debt collectors. If you have a bill, and it goes to collections, well, the individual sold that obligation to someone else as a cash account. There is no contract that you have between that collection agency or otherwise. Maybe or maybe not. There was a transfer clause in the agreement that allowed them to transfer the obligation. But what they're failing to tell you and what people are failing to realize is that even if they did, selling it and transferring it is improper procedure because what they've already done prior to that is they've written it off and received a tax credit which basically only allows the party who gave them the tax credit to come after you which is the treasury, the IRS via the treasury so unless you get a tax bill for that obligation from the treasury you get one from a debt collector it's easy to get rid of that. But again, if you buy a car from an individual and you pay it off and they don't reconvey title, you're billing for the value of the title. Your possession is nine-tenths of the law. One-tenth is title. So it's not about the car. It's about the title to the car. So if you don't pay that, I'll bill you. And if you do not pay it within three cycles of billing, I'll cancel the debt and file the 1099-C with the IRS and let them come after you for the collection. I'm going to get the treasure check. They're going to get their money back that they paid me out of your ass for not reconveying the title as a delinquent creditor. And you're going to lose your exemption until you rectify the issue. So administratively, the defects have been lack of enforcement with anything. Any administrative process, like a ticketing agency, the state sells the DMV accounts based on the, based on the, that on the fact that each DMV account is a speculation account. If an average ticket is 150 bucks, and you've got average three tickets per year per person, it's a 450 dollars speculation account that they probably get 10 percent or 10 cents on the dollar. So they get 45 dollars for every single DMV account, just as an even number for the purpose of this conversation. They get 10% or $45 times thousands of DMV accounts. And then when those bonded obligations are basically pooled and being traded on the open market, the state takes the $45 times however many contracts that they had, driver license accounts, and invests that money into the same mutual fund in which those obligations are being publicly traded. And there's insider trading going on because whenever the fund manager basically comes back and says, Hey, these obligations are not performing at 450 bucks. They're only performing at like $300 Because you're only getting two tickets on average When I say $450 You know, average of three tickets You might get one, I might get three Someone else might get ten And others might not get any But the average being three tickets at 150 That's a $450 speculation account And if they're only performing at like $300 level What do they do? They contact the person who sold them the uh, asset And say, hey, look, you know we uh, These are non-performing assets What do they do? The the, uh, the investor who bought it from the state, after he's contacted by a fund manager, because someone else is making a claim with the fund manager, they go back to the party they got it from the state and say, hey, look, you know, we're we bought these under the uh, speculation that there would be $450 accounts, uh, speculation accounts, but they're not performing. It's $150, $300 worth of performance. Bond ratings agencies are devaluing the bonds we're losing investors. Well, what are you going to do about it? The state says, no problem. We're going to basically jack up the ticket quota. So what's happening here is they are manipulating the performance of those obligations, of those speculation accounts. But if the DMV or the ticketed agency buy through the state as its agent or its subsidiary tickets you, the question you have to ask is, are they representing a party of interest? And the answer is absolutely not, because when they sold the bonds that were there to secure the performance of repaying or paying the obligation, should one be created to someone else, then they've they've lost the right to collect that amount. So on a traffic ticket, you basically find out where the DMV account was basically sold and pulled with other like investments and being traded on open market publicly and do a motion to dismiss supported by an affidavit outlining in an exhibit, which is a securitization analysis that shows that they're not a part of interest. We're not here. but judge, he was doing 90 miles an hour in a 35. Judge, that's not true. I was doing 100, but we're not here to determine whether or not I was speeding we're here to determine whether the party bringing the claim is a party in interest and it's not they're not get it in your head because this is the way it's always been and this is the way it's always going to be and the sooner you open your eyes and realize it the sooner you're going to start getting remedy if you guys have any questions contact me at Greg Rantz that's G-R-E-G-R-A-N-T-Z at gmail.com with any questions or comments you might have we offer a mentoring program that's a six months a three six months or a one year mentoring program where we can bring you up to speed on topics we just discussed in this podcast I hope you guys have a great day I hope to hear from you